I'm Jennifer Isabella. And I'm Stephanie Boloris. Your co-host for Forrester's podcast, What It Means, where we explore the major changes in the market influencing executive priorities. Today, we're joined by Vice President and Group Director Isabel Montes de Dioca and Principal Analyst Ian Bruce to discuss why trust matters more than ever in B2B buying relationships and how B2B firms can build and maintain buyer's trust. Welcome both. Thanks, Jen. It's great to be here. Thanks for inviting us. So I often think about trust in a consumer context, right? And we know that um, based on recent research that Forrester has published, um, trust is a very important thing for organizations to take seriously and make a concrete concept. How is this playing out in the B2B context? Yeah, I think it's I think it's fair to say that we you know immediately think of trust in that consumer context. I think that's a re- a reality. Um, you know, trust is a complex um, ephemeral concept. It's rooted in social human social behavior. Um, maybe not the typical comfort zone for analytically minded B two B marketing professionals, perhaps. Um, so I think that's possibly one of the reasons for it. The reality is, you know, when Isabel and I talk to B2B marketing leaders, they're thinking about trust all the time. It's front and center when they do market research. When you look at their mission vision statements for the brand, it's always in there. Um, they're always searching for trust, but I think they often lack a coherent framework for breaking it down and thinking about it in a coherent way, in a meaningful way that they can operationalize, measure, and, and act upon. The other side of that is, you know, B2B buyers are humans too. They crave trust, right? Um, you know, they live complex lives. You know, purchase decisions are very, very complicated. They have to think about price, performance, service levels, procurement regulations, and on and on. But they're also thinking about their own professional self-interests. They engage in risk avoidance. Um, you know, they're motivated by softer appeals like self-esteem or brand affinity, um, and very often B2B buyers are looking, you know, to build those relationships with a partner that gives them some confidence in a future outcome, which is, you know, the very definition of trust. So I think there isn't a doubt that for the B2B buyer, trust is paramount. There's something that really struck me about your research, which is there's a, a huge gap between perception and reality around trust and trust-related themes, which is you know, companies might view themselves as trustworthy or, or certain aspects um, related to trust as being very high. But then if you look at the actual data from the buyer or the client perspective, it's, it's very different. Could you talk a little bit about that? Sure. Yeah. So uh, what Isabel and I did is we, we looked at some data from um, the market and public relations firm Edelman, who have run some uh, research around levels of trust in all institutions globally for a couple of decades now. And, you know, what they've found is the sort of big trend over those two decades is that the levels of trust in institutions broadly, this won't come as a shock to any listeners to this podcast, have been in decline. Um, And that's governments, NGOs, and religious institutions, and brands of all flavors, right? So levels of trust are falling. Um, So we looked at the levels of trust in B2B heavy sectors like financial services, telco, healthcare, and so on. And, you know, the, the reports that you get on data in those sectors is that levels of trust currently today float in the high 50s, mid 60s percentage range. So that's that's where they currently sit. What we did is we went out to B2B companies in those sectors and asked them whether they thought they were trusted more than the average. So, 
We ask them about, you know, do, do they act uh, honestly and in ethical ways? Um, you know, are they um, following through on their commitments and, and things like that? And we ask them to rate themselves as being above or below the average um, on those dimensions. And what might be shocking is that, you know, CMOs of the very and other marketing leaders have a very high opinion of themselves and of their companies and of their brand. Um, 92% of respondents thought they were above the average on being honest and ethical, which, you know, it's just craziness, right? Um, so there's this huge gap between what, you know, brand leaders and marketing leaders think about their organizations and of themselves and what buyers, the, the marketplace actually thinks about them. Um, and this gulf is, is getting wider. Um, I don't think it's gone unnoticed, I should say. I, I think the experiences of the last year, the pandemic, um, the, uh, especially in the US, the headlines we read about fake news and on and so forth, I think there's a, a recognition that there's a trust crisis maybe brewing out there, or at least um, trust is, is being refactored in people's minds. They're going to other places to find trusted relationships. But um, they may have that idea in their minds, but they don't know how to act on it. Um, but yes, the trust gap is, is big and it's growing. Why do you think that firms or leaders at these firms have such an inflated sense of their trust? It's, it's, it's a huge inflation. I mean, it's a, yeah. 40, it's a 40% gap between uh, their That's perception like a, and reality. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> it's like a gulf, not a gap, right? right? Like, it's, it's, a, it's not a gap. It's a chasm. Yes. Yeah. Well, one of the things I would say is um, uh, often when I talk to marketing leaders, um, it's not so much a, um, a, a an overinflated sense of ego, um, if, if that's what we're getting at. It's more that they live and they breathe their own messaging and their focus, and they're so immersed in it that they believe that everyone in the market has that same level of depth and awareness um, of everything they've done. And the, fr the brutal truth is, Honestly, buyers just don't have that kind of time. They don't have that kind of awareness, right? They have a lot of information being thrown at them, um, you know, uh, w willingly and unwillingly that just lands in their inbox. Um, and they're doing their best to kind of keep up with all of the different kinds of brands and, and vendors that they should. Um, but they probably have, you know, I'll, I'll wager, you know, 50% of the knowledge that perhaps a marketing leader thinks they have. Uh, and so I think that's part of what's fueling that gap, right? Maybe if they knew the entire story, they would have that, you know, improved perception, but they really don't and they don't have time to get it. Yeah, I'd agree. And there's, a, there's just a degree of human wishful thinking, right? We all do it. So there's, there's a degree of that as well. So is there a difference in the B2B context in terms of what trust means to B2B buyers versus us as consumers and, and interacting with a consumer brand, like, is that, is it very different or is it nuanced? Like, how should we think about trust in this particular context? I think one of the biggest differences that Ian and I found as we started to dig into this um, is that in B2B, you have um, a risk reward calculation that is very, very significant. Um, the individual B2B buyer, um, is uh, or the B2B buyer is most often 
a group of people. It's not a single individual as perhaps you might find more often in a consumer type of situation. So as Ian was talking about earlier where you know the B2B buyer has to juggle personal, functional, organizational types of needs and, and um, wants, in, in the B2B context, actually it's a group of people trying to juggle that together. So that adds complexity to it. Um, and that sort of brings us to that second piece, which is a risk and reward calculation. Um, you know, if you're, if you're thinking about um, the risk that you're bearing, it's not just for yourself, but it could be for mission critical, right? Absolutely uh, the kind of thing that can take you offline for a considerable period of time and cost the company millions, if not billions of dollars, like that's a heavy weight um, that needs to be factored into the conversation. Equally, you've got the reward side of things, right? Where if you install a particular solution or service, and that makes you dramatically more competitive, more efficient, right? Um, then that's going to make you much more um, able to, uh, you know, drive growth, right? Um, and achieve your targets overall. And again, that's an, an incredibly large prize, right? For making the right choice. So the, the risk and reward matrix, while I think it does exist in a consumer setting, it, it's, it's just on steroids, right? In a B2B setting. And just to double down on that thought, I think, you know, there's there's evidence out there that there are things called risk cultures in different companies and in different markets, right? That the way that risks are treated um, and that mistakes are treated is very, very different in, in different kinds of organizations. The two classic examples, you know, are in healthcare where risks are hidden um, at, at our all our costs, typically um, in, in the healthcare industry. Whereas in the aerospace industry where, you know, the outcomes could be just as devastating if things go wrong. Risks are made very, very public. Um, so there's these different ways of treating errors and risks that play out culturally in the decision-making process for buyers, which can have a very significant effect on how buyers act. It's interesting with, with trust. I mean, we, across B2B and B2C, we did identify seven, seven levers of trust. Um, you know, they include accountability, competence, consistency, dependability, empathy, integrity, transparency. Um, you know, in the, in the B2C space, we found that depending on the business model, you know, whether you were kind of an organization that was delivering convenience, for example, to a consumer, um, the importance of those levers changed dramatically. I'm curious if you could, in your research, if you could talk about how you found them to change based on certain types of industries or sectors or even situations like when you talked about that risk reward calculation. Yeah. Um, so one of the things that Isabel and I have done over the, the last few months is, is interview a lot of marketing leaders at various B2B companies in very different industries to try and get a sense of um, how those different dimensions, uh, Stephanie, of trust play out in, in those different industries. And if there are what you might call archetypes um, that you can identify uh, for which levers of trust uh, predominate in, in those different settings for different products and services in different industries. Um, and, you know, we did find some patterns um, in the interviews that, that we conducted where, you know, we would talk to, for example, you know, a, a very large scale organization that is involved in um, technology and hardware solutions that uh, support um, infrastructure for um, the electrical grid. 
um, and in that setting, you know, there, there, the way that risk and trust manifests itself is very, very different to um, a software, com- an innovative software company that is uh, providing, you know, infrastructure software solutions uh, for companies, um, and whether the risk equa- risk and trust equation is very different. So, yeah, we did identify some archetypes based on um, some of the industries and some of the CMOs and, and marketing leaders that we we, we talked about. I'm curious if there were any any surprises. It was interesting, um, you know, on the B to C side, we had some hypotheses about which levers would be more important for certain for certain business types, um, and there were some surprises. You know, for example, like one of our business types is, um, you know, high convenience, quick delivery, high convenience, and we were shocked when empathy was really high up on the list. Um, and then it turns out across like business type, dependability was almost number one or number two in every business type. Maybe not so surprising um, in the recent year of the pandemic, but the empathy one like really surprised me and there were a few other surprises. So I'm curious uh, in some of your interviews, if there were, if there were any surprises or maybe counterintuitive insights. Well, there was one pleasant surprise. I think that Isabel and I both experienced in all the calls we had, which is everybody lent into this conversation in a very big way. It resonated immediately. Um, and the the way that they, that we had asked them to think about um, trust with the, the levers that uh, we identified made a lot of intuitive sense. As did, as did the the sort of co placement of this risk reward calculation uh, in the minds of buyers. Um, so that was a pleasant surprise. That clearly this is, I think, top of mind for a lot of B two B companies. They're thinking about it. They want to understand it better. They know it's significant and important. Um, Another surprise that that I got just because I hadn't thought about it was um, the longevity of the company really plays out in this calculation. Um, You know, there's this old cliche, you know, nobody ever got fired for buying IBM. Um, That sort of risk avoidance thing that's built into that phrase um, is very, very real. Um, you know, um, we, we talked, as an example, to a professional services firm, global company, $50 billion, a global footprint, been around for 50 years. Um, now, this is not a well-known brand, particularly, actually, even though it has that history. But that legacy um, of an experience that they can bring to bear really played out in the minds of uh, the CMO of that company and in the way that they thought about trust. You know, there's a, an adage that familiarity breeds contempt. It's exactly the opposite. Familiarity breeds trust. And I think that was a, a big surprise uh, for Isabel and I to, to sort of see how this very complex concept of trust plays out in different um, scenarios and how the, the attributes of the brand of the business can be brought to bear to, um, to think about trust and, and to improve trust. Yeah, just to add to what Ian's saying, um, 100% agree. I was really pleasantly surprised how quickly the inter- the CMOs that we were interviewing absolutely understood the importance. There, I mean, that was, yep, got it, move on. Um, how quickly they understood and agreed with the seven levers, absolutely spot on, and how quick they were to identify their top three. 
Um, and they were all identifying different top threes, as Ian was saying, dependent on their sectors. But they knew. Um, so this is not new. This is not sort of struggling to, you know, let's figure out whether lever one or lever two. No, they were right on it. Um, and, and also to add on to what Ian was saying, I was pleasantly surprised how often I saw empathy come up. Um, specifically in, in the interviews that I did, it was with uh, companies that were selling to very large enterprises, um, helping them move um, perhaps from an on-prem to a cloud type of solution, and how empathy actually made it into their top three because they understood that in order to help them manage through the change, actually it was not just about the technology, it was very much about understanding the risk that was involved for them, right? Helping them manage that risk in a really empathetic way. Um, and so I was just, I was really impressed by how clear the CMOs that we talked to were about the importance that that played for them. I guess two follow-up questions to that. The, the first one is, it's great that they recognize trust as an imperative, the way, the way we've been um, discussing it. Do they recognize that it just doesn't come about accidentally? that you have to take deliberate actions? Do they recognize that, okay, here are the seven levers. Uh, if I understand those levers in depth and if I understand how it changes by audience, you know, not just with my clients, but my employees and even my partner ecosystem, they re recognize or recognize now that they can take a deliberate approach to improving it, to increasing their trust capital. Um, they think, um, I think they recognize that they can't just wave a magic wand, but uh, to something Ian said a while ago, they were lacking a construct to be able to break it down into something manageable. And so in our interviews, that's what really got their attention, right? This idea that they could take trust from being um, a, you know, an important concept that they really must try and, and increase the trust that people had in them to something they could dissect and then actually put action plans in place, right? So giving them the ability to think about that risk reward that we were talking about earlier, break that down into a matrix and identify the clients for which trust was absolutely paramount. Um, so rather than having to sort of face their, you know, CSOs or CEOs and say, trust is important for everyone, they could go in with a very laser focused approach um, through the types of research that we were sharing with them to say, actually, trust is important, but it's really paramount to this set, the folks who are in a high risk, high reward situation. Now, let's identify a set of those and understand what are the trust levers that are most important to them. And once they knew that, it was so simple to be able to say, well, you know what, if, um, if empathy and dependability are two of my most important trust levers, then here are the initiatives that I can invest in, right, with the, this handful of companies in order to move the needle on trust for them. Um, and then the added bonus that they found is once they invested with these, this handful of strategic accounts to move the needle on trust, what they uncovered was a wealth of ideas that they could then bring back into the rest of the business, their product design, their processes, their sales and marketing organization that essentially benefited everybody. So it not only helped them make it tangible and, and discreet, but it also gave them a way to invest in a small way that actually benefited everybody. 
Okay. You might have answered my second question. As you were talking, one thing I was worried about, which is going back to how we opened the conversation, which is there's this gap between their own perception and actual reality on the part of their buyers. So were they making assumptions about which trust lovers were the most important? Were they recognized like, look, I, I can't just assume I need to go out and actually talk to clients? Yeah, Stephanie, when I did my interviews, you know, I would show them um, a slide that showed the data that we just described at the head of this podcast. And the reaction I got was laughter often. Um, there was, there was, people sort of at a gut level know that they're, they're living in a, you know, wish fulfillment world um, and that their ideas of how trusted they are and that they're more trusted than any of that and on and so forth. All the things we talked about, you know, they know it's something of a fiction they tell themselves. It's a story they tell themselves. And so one of the things I think the data that we provide them did and the framework we provided them did is it allowed them to get outside of their own heads and outside of their own thinking and outside of that narrative that they have inside the company um, and get in the minds and the headset of the buyer and understand from their perspective really what are the key components that's going to elevate real trust in the institution and why. Uh, it forced them to think from the buyer perspective. I think what a lot of B2B marketing leaders do is, you know, they're, they're constantly thinking inside out instead of outside in, in, in this world. And that's, that's a cardinal sin in, in this kind of uh, thought around trust. You have to get inside the mind of the buyer and see from through their eyes um, what the risks are, what the rewards are why trust is imperative and how they will uh, apprehend it. Uh, and that's, you know, the first step in the journey really to understanding how to, how to move these levers in the right direction. One of the things, you know, Isabel, you touched on this a, a little bit is obviously you, you spoke with many marketing leaders, but interestingly, these insights are brought back to other groups within the organization to sort of permeate like, product design and experiences as well. Can you talk a little bit about those connection points? You know, is this a, sort of a foundation for which to actually build trust and alignment with your peers as a marketing leader as well? Like this is, in my mind, kind of gold for product leaders as well, understanding, better understanding your buyer and the experiences that they're expecting and aligning the customer experience with the brand promise that marketing leaders are sort of setting forth out in the market. Yeah, absolutely. Um, there is um, a piece of research um, that uh, that was published a little while ago in Forrester that talks about um, this, um, you know, never-ending loop uh, between expectations and experience, um, and that is so central to the way that companies seek to approach this. Um, we can we can understand trust. We can interview our customers and break that down to the trust lovers that matter, right? Um, we can even invest in sort of these point sort of projects, but unless we're bringing it back into the rest of the organization, across the organization, so that we are consistently setting clear expectations for those buyers. And remember what we said at the beginning, buyers don't have a whole lot of time, right? They probably only know half, if not less of that than what we're actually saying. So we need to be constantly reinforcing those expectations and being very succinct and clear about that. 
together with then delivering on that uh, through the experiences. And that means experiences on our websites. It means experiences at our events, with our salespeople, through our products, actual user interfaces, through our customer support, right? Through all of those things together, all of those experiences need to live up to that expectation that we've set through the brand promise. Um, and so we, we absolutely have to take those learnings and feed them across all of those different functions and bring those functions together to really ask themselves, are we pulling in the same direction so that every experience is delivering on expectation? That's the way you build up trust in layers, right? It starts out as, as what's called shallow trust um, and builds up in layers over time. But if you get those layers thick enough, if you have a problem, it might knock you down, but it won't knock you down to the beginning. Um, and that's really the kind of um, situation you want to be in, because if a buyer trusts you, right, uh, you are going to be in a safer place. They're going to come to you first, right, when they're thinking about their next purchase. Um, maybe they're going to tell their friends or their other peers about you and the and the relationship and the product that you've offered them um, and, and become an advocate for you. Um, and when things perhaps go wrong and things always go wrong at some point, um, they're actually going to be there defending you and saying, no, I, I know they can put this right. Um, and so that's, that's really the end game in all of this. At our recent um, U.S. summit um, event, you know, J Isabel and I uh, did a presentation on this on this topic, and we drew an analogy with financial services. And one of the things we talked about is that you know, in the U.S. dollar bill, it has that famous line "In God We Trust," which may be true, but who we really trust is the U.S. government, the U.S. Federal Reserve, the FDIC, our local bank, and our local bank manager. Right? That's where the trust really lives. It's at all of those layers, and I think you know, B2B companies need to think about all of those layers of experience that Isabel was talking about and where where they exist and where trust is created and built up. It's an analogous process. You know, in some cases, in some industries, regulations create boundaries which foster trust. That's why the regulations exist in the first place. Financial services is an excellent example of that. But there are many other ways that trust can be fostered, created, and um, enjoyed, right? But think about what are those interactions with the brand? What are those interactions inside the organization? Think about how employee experiences build brand experiences, you know, create customer experiences. Um, trust can, can be manifest in all those places. So we know that trust, while perceived as maybe more of a concept, is actually a concrete thing. We understand what these levers are. We have a ton of research to support this. So... Um, if you were going to give advice to B2B leaders, as you do every day, what are the action items? Um, where should B2B leaders start to really address the trust imperative as we've described it? Great question. Um, I would suggest uh, you have to start by understanding the risk reward calculus for your specific industry. Um, if you have uh, more than one industry that you serve, then you're going to need to do that individually per industry. But to the points that Ian was making earlier um, about the archetypes, um, they may differ by industry. So start with a risk reward calculus um, for each of those industries. And then within that industry, um, interview clients, right? Find out which of the trust levers that matter the most to them. This is not about trying to 
boil the ocean. It's actually about trying to get very specific about for this industry and that kind of client, what matters most to them. And once you do that, then identify a handful of pilot projects, right? That you can invest in that are going to really move the needle on that, you know, top set of trust levers. Um, because that's really what's gonna help you help them reduce the sense of risk, increase the sense of reward, right? And really you'll start to see some interesting, you know, outcomes from that kind of investment. Start small, right? And then grow from there. I think what you'll find will really transform the way you think about your operations and really help you do that outside in that we were talking about before. Great. Well, thank you both for joining us today. It's great to be here. Thank you. If you like what you heard today, subscribe to Forrester's What It Means podcast on iTunes, Google Podcasts, and Spotify, or your favorite podcast player. To continue the conversation, follow Forrester on Twitter, Instagram, and LinkedIn. Thanks for listening.